0: It's good to have you guys. Happy Easter. Uh, I know that we are sort of piggybacking this morning off the momentum uh, that we had on Friday night at our Good Friday service. It was a really awesome time. I want to thank everyone that was involved in that, and also the men's prayer. So we had a bunch of men that gathered on Friday night, prayed through the night here in this venue, prayed for many things, but one of the things that they did pray for was for today, and so I think we are beneficiaries of that. So I want to thank all those men that committed their time and their entire evening uh, to praying for us and for this local church. My wife, Catherine, has recently re- returned from South Africa with our beautiful children, Alessio, Dino, and Arabella, and I just want to welcome her back. Today's her first Sunday back after being in South Africa for six, not six, four weeks. I feel so long without you, love, you know. I'm joking. We were together just for one week. We were apart, but she's back now, so I hope you guys will love on her at the end of this meeting. We have this privilege, uh, all of us do have this privilege to be a part of a local church. We have this privilege of being a part of this local church, but I'm super excited that God calls us and sets us into family. You know, the Word of God tells us that the lonely are placed into families, and God does that so well by knitting our hearts together under a common cause, and that's our risen King. So let's celebrate him this morning together. Just a quick reminder before I go further, for those of you that were here or have been a part of Hope Rock Church and have gone through our series in Revelation, we are going back to Revelation. So we're going to go start the next section, the seven seals, this coming Sunday. Uh, I know that uh, this world seems like a crazy place. I know that. The, Things of this world can sometimes distract us and we can become disheartened by what we see. And while the first section of Revelation focused on the church, this next section is going to give us a broader view of world events, and how they all fit into God's plan. The good news is, no matter how discouraged you may be, no matter how upset you may be, no matter how worried you may be about the future, when we read the book of Revelation, what we read is a victorious journal of a victorious king. We have the victory. It's a victory. We are going to conquer. We are going to win. And that's all that you need to know, really, about the book of Revelation. But we're going to unpack it together. So if you're interested in end times, or end time theology, or just want to know more, please come next week. So over the last five weeks, here at Hope Rock, we've been going through an Easter series. Preparing ourselves for today, basically. And along that journey, what we've tried to do is highlight certain aspects or facets or character traits of Jesus. These are by no ways the sum total of Jesus' character traits. We could spend all day and pretty much the rest of our lives just describing every facet of the character of God. But what we focused on was certain things. And so what we learned about Jesus in this journey is that he's a humble savior. A savior who comes riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday one week ago to the day on a donkey not in a chariot, not in a, uh, you know, limousine, not with, you know, shouts of thunder and all of this crazy stuff. He just comes in riding on a donkey, humble as anything. And what I learned from that for me personally, apart from the fact that, you know, he did some crazy stuff in his life and he turned the dead to life and all of that stuff. One of the things I've always seen in Jesus is this, this humility. And I think that what we need to do as we represent the king and the kingdom to this world is to remain more humble, less arrogant, more humble. Go out there with love. Let's Respect the people that God's called us to lead lead and to reach. And let's just love on them the way Jesus did. We learned that Jesus is also a righteous God. A God who, as much as he is forgiving and loving, will not share his glory with anyone else. I said this this morning, and it just is something that I really, really stand on and believe that God is the most protective of us as his people. And so one of the things that he always stand up for and fight for is us. And when we start to share his glory with something else, he doesn't like it. We've also learned that, Jesus is a God who knows our hearts. He knows our hearts. He knows what we're good at and what we're bad at. But what he does know is what we are capable of doing. And so he's always continuously striving or not striving. He's always pushing us to strive towards becoming closer to him in relationship, not to earn his love, not to become more religious or to become better, but just to grow in relationship with him. We learned that he's a savior that loves it when we worship him. We saw that beautiful picture of Mary and Martha Martha is busy doing all the stuff in the house, serving the tea, serving the coffee, making sure everyone's got cake and making sure that everyone's looked after. And to a certain extent, we do a lot of that on Easter Sunday. You know, we come to church and we want to make sure that everybody is having the right type of experience. But I want to say to you this morning that as much as you might have come to look for an experience, what I'm more interested in is an encounter. I want to encounter God. And I hope that you want to encounter God this morning. Not to say that we don't want to love on you and, and, and be good, you know, hosts of you, but we are here to encounter God this morning. Sometimes we need to learn how to love the Lord of the work as opposed to the work of the Lord. And that's really what Mary shows us. And then we learned last week that Jesus is a Savior who not only understands our frailty, in other words, that none of us here are perfect. I know it's hard to believe. I get it. Like, uh, when you look at me, you're like, I mean, I'm just kidding. None of us here are perfect. Jesus knows that. Like, he's not surprised when you go to him in prayer and say, Lord, I messed up. He's not like, what? You messed up. You, of all people. No, he knows. But here's the deal. He doesn't leave us in our frailty. He doesn't leave us in our weakness and he doesn't leave us in our sin. In fact, he takes that sin. He takes that frailty and he turns it into something that he uses for his glory. He did it with Peter, right? Peter denied Christ three times. Jesus recommissions him three times. And that's the glory of the God that we serve. And whilst... You know, we've looked at all these different facets. I believe that this morning, probably one of the most important facets that we can stand on is the simple fact that Jesus is alive. Think about it. Jesus is alive. Think of what that means to serve a God that is not dead, that's not in some tomb, that's not a fiction of our imagination, but a God that is alive. Now, I think a lot of us here in this room probably agree with that fact. We agree that Jesus is alive. But what I've noticed that we have the tendency to do, is although we have a living king, we have the tendency to seek life in the things of this world that are fundamentally dead. It happens every single time we start to worship the things of the world as opposed to the creator of the world. It happens every time we look for our comfort or our security from pleasure or from the idols that the world establishes, and we think that these dead things that are in existence are somehow going to give us something that we don't have. But I don't know about you, but every single time I've turned to those things, what I've found is I've come away from that feeling lost, hopeless, and full of despair. Samuel, when he addresses the nation of Israel, just before or just after, in fact, they've asked for a king. They've had this king of the universe guiding them and leading them, but they wanted to go to the systems of this world for their answer. And so they say, we want to be just like everybody else. Because they're clearly doing amazing, these other nations. And so we want a king. And Samuel says this in 1 Samuel 12, 21. He says, And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. And the fact is, as we celebrate Easter, let us remember that every time we turn to the systems of this world as opposed to our king, we are turning towards empty and dead things. Isaiah puts it another way, or Isaiah. He says this. It's the same guy, by the way, just two different ways of pronouncing it. (laughs) Same book. Isaiah 44 verse 9, all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things that that they delight in do not profit. I don't know about anyone else, but I know what it means not to profit from the systems of this world. You know, it's this weird exchange. We, we keep thinking to ourselves that if we just do more of this thing, or if we get a better job, or maybe we have more children, or have, if maybe if we had less children, or if we go on vacation more, or go on vacation less, or just have this type of thing in our lives, or this type of garden, or this type of deck. Sorry, that's on my mind because I'm thinking about what deck I want to build in my house. Then everything's somehow going to be different, right? But what Isaiah tells us is those things are never going to profit us in the long term. There's nothing wrong with some of those things. But they are not where we find living hope. The point I'm making this morning is that we are a people called to worship and to celebrate a living king. And he is reminding us that there is another way as opposed to the dead things of this world, and that is him. And when we choose to forsake the dead things or the systems of this world and all those other idols that we set up and choose to place our trust in God, a living God, we become a people who choose life over death, hope over hopelessness. Fulfillment over despair, and I feel like that's the main thread of what's going to happen here this morning. I feel like God is giving us a choice, He's presenting us this morning, each and every one of us in this room, with a choice. And it was weird because as I was preparing for today, I was like, Man, Lord, I have no idea, and I don't understand what we're doing here in this preach because it seems very confusing to me. And so, you guys better hold on because if it was confusing to me, But the Lord started to reveal things to me, even up to this morning as I was praying. And what he was saying is, all we're simply doing is I'm just reminding us that we all have a choice to make. And so the question I want to start with this morning is, what will we choose? And hopefully by the end, we'll know. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28. Ashley read it this morning. She read the first section. And we're going to keep unpacking it this morning. We're actually going to go pretty much through the entire chapter. And I really believe God's going to show us some things. He's going to reveal some things to all of our hearts. And I also understand one thing, that every person comes to this church with a different heart condition. By no means do I say that every single one of us are in the same place spiritually. By no means do I think we're all sharing each other's burdens or going through each other's problems. But what I do know is that all of us come to church, come to this place of worship with a heart condition and a certain lean. Some of us in this morning maybe are fervent believers of who Jesus is. Maybe we love the Lord with all our hearts and souls. Maybe others are on the fence or undecided. Maybe you don't know who Jesus is at all. Whoever you are and however you've come, this message is for all of us. For me especially. So Matthew 28 is the last chapter of the book of Matthew. And really it's dealing with the resurrection. We know that. But it's also dealing with the climax of the entire gospel story. You see, what we have to understand is the entirety of the resurrection makes the betrayal, the pain, the shame, and the execution of Jesus worthwhile. Because as Jesus looked towards the cross, what he saw was me and you and every other human being who he's opening his hands to, declaring their faith in him. Like a lamb to the slaughter, he went and he was punished on our behalf. And so this is actually a celebratory moment. Matthew 28 verse 1, now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. I'm going to pray real quick because I realize I need to pray, and so I want to, and then we'll unpack this. Father, thank you for every single person represented here today. I pray for all of our hearts. Soften them, make them open to hear what you have to say, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do your work today in our midst. Let this not be an experience but let it be an encounter with the living God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me paint the picture here. This happens at some point after 5 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday in April in Palestine. Jesus has been crucified. These two ladies that are going to the tomb, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, it's not Jesus' mother, by the way. It's Mary, the wife of James, who's the son of Zebedee. It's very confusing, but this is not the mother of Mary. They go to the tomb. These women have interestingly been there for this entirety of this whole horrendous experience. They were there watching Jesus walk up the Via de la Rosa all the way up to Golgotha, the place of the skull. They watched Jesus before that being beaten, scourged, and ridiculed. They watched him being nailed to the cross. They watched him being made fun of. They watched him ultimately get stabbed in his side and breathe his last after he cried out, It is finished. I want you to just think of the mindset of these two women. At this moment, they're probably broken, pretty shattered, and are hopeless. Everything that they've been following, believing in, and trusting for seems to have come to a crashing halt. And the reason they're going back to the tomb is with no expectation. You have to understand that both Marys went to the tomb without expecting anything, they went there to anoint a dead body. That was what they were doing. That was their mission. And how often do we come on a Sunday morning to church or go to our prayer room or sit there with God and we come with a place where we are not expecting anything to happen? I'm saying this to you this morning because I want you to understand that your expectation sometimes has nothing to do with how God's going to show up in a situation. Yes, we come hopefully expectant. I'm hoping every time I come to church I see more of Jesus because if it's just about me, I don't want to see myself, right? And I honestly don't want to ever follow any man. So I do expect more, but sometimes God shows up even when we don't expect him. And so, anyway, these women have been through it all, and now they get to witness this beautiful event. But the event that's happening is not actually the resurrection, right? We know that. It's not the resurrection. Jesus was resurrected before this. We don't know exactly when it happened. Nobody was there. Nobody saw it. But Jesus had already been resurrected. In verse 2, it says this, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. This angel is like so calm. He's like just sits on the stone. His appearance was like lighting and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the gods trembled and became like dead men. So I want you to just, if you could, just imagine this moment and just what must have visibly been happening in this world. So there's an earthquake, right? This is not just an earthquake. This is a supernatural earthquake, which is probably the craziest type of earthquake you can have. And then this being comes from heaven like lightning, and it's majestic. It's beautiful. He's big. And he starts to roll away the stone. The stone was anywhere between four and six feet in diameter, one foot thick, and weighed between two and four thousand pounds. So just the fact that he could just move it himself is a feat. And then you've got these Roman gods who see all of this happen, right? They're standing there. They don't have boots on. They've got sandals on. I did say shaking their boots earlier. I mean, they, they shook in their sandals. If you can shake in your sandals, they shook. They see this crazy magnificent sight this awe-inspiring beam and they are petrified these are by the way the Roman elite soldiers these aren't just a ragtag bunch of militiamen that they found on the side of the road and said hey can you just come and guard this tomb this is like real stuff and they petrified and it's almost like in this moment when Matthew's writing this entire account as he starts to describe what's happening he's reminding us of events that happened thousands of years ago on Mount Sinai you know, when the, law, when the law came into effect, when God appeared on Mount Sinai, the text says that he appeared in a cloud of glory. The glory of the Lord set upon Mount Sinai. And with that were peals of thunder, thunder and lightning and earthquakes and all of this stuff. And Matthew is sort of reminding us that in this moment, Jesus came not to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. The law has come full circle. And he's doing that because his audience is largely Jewish. But it's a great reminder to us that in Christ, we find the fulfillment of everything. There is no religion that's going to save us. There is a relationship with Christ that will save us. And so these Roman gods are petrified, they're scared, all because they couldn't explain what they saw. The angel responds, notice this to the woman and not with the men. I mean, these men are scared. I think the woman would probably be scared too. And the angel says, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Now, I'm not as intelligent as most people are. Uh, I say that honestly. I mean, I wasn't a really intelligent child in terms of my schooling. I struggled to finish school. I did a lot of crazy stuff. And so I never really thought of this or thought this through very clearly as a youngster growing up in a Catholic church. But I always assumed that the stone was rolled away because Jesus needed to get out the tomb. Like he was waiting there. Like he'd been resurrected. He's in the dark. He's like, when is this door going to open? I need to go. I've got a mission to do. That was always my assumption. And I wonder if anyone here has ever had that consideration. Why did the angel roll the stone? the stone away from the tomb? Was it to let Jesus out? You know, the answer is no. Everyone here knows it, right? I'm sorry I didn't know it as a youngster, but you guys know it, which is a good thing. We know that the angel didn't roll the stone away to let Jesus out because Jesus wasn't concerned with stone barriers. He appeared to the disciples in the upper room, in a room that was locked, without any doors open, he appeared there. So doors weren't a problem for Jesus. He didn't need an exit. We know that his grave clothes were left where he lay. In other words, in that Crazy moment. I mean, I'd I love to be able to see this moment happen. But in that moment, as he's being glorified, the grave clothes just passed right through him. So Jesus didn't need to be led out of the room. And so why did the angel roll the stone away? He says this in verse 6. He says, he is not here, for he has risen as he said he would. So Jesus has told you he's going to rise, he's gone. But then he says this. He says, come, see the place where he lay. Now, you could think to yourself, well, hey, he's not here. He's been risen. That's enough of the story. Cool, great. That's it. Thank you, Lord. I mean, you look pretty scary yourself. I'll get it. Um, He's great. No, he says, come and see where he lay. And it's that come see that I believe gives us the answers as to why the stone was rolled away. You see, the stone was not rolled away for the sake of Jesus. The stone was rolled away for our sake. And that's sort of the first thing that... I want to reveal to us this morning, and again, you might know this, but let me remind you of it. The miracle at the tomb was not to let Jesus out. It was to let us in. Let me say it again. It was to let us in. The God that we serve, friends, is a God who invites us in. No matter where you find yourself this morning, in your journey of faith, maybe you don't even know you're on a faith journey. Maybe you're pretty much agnostic, don't believe in nothing. That's okay. The God that we serve is inviting you into a relationship this morning. The Marys needed to know that Jesus was alive, even though they hadn't verbalized it, even though they hadn't said anything to the angel, they needed to know and God knew that. And so he invites him and he says, come see for yourself. There is proof. Jesus is not here. He is risen. And the reason that God continues to roll the stone away for us this morning and the reason God will continue to roll the stone away for us in the rest of our lives is this. It's for two purposes. One, there are people here today who don't believe that Jesus is alive. You have no concept of it. You don't understand it. You're sitting on the fence. You're undecided. Maybe you're even, you've are even. you given your heart to Jesus, but there are still issues in your mind about what this is. Resurrection truly means the stone is rolled away so that you can come in closer and have a deeper look. The second reason Jesus rose, or Jesus allows the stone to be rolled away for our behalf is because a lot of us here who are believers, who believe in the resurrection, who trust in the, uh, the reality of who Jesus is, are living as if Jesus was dead. Jesus wants to remind us, for those of us that know he's alive, he wants to remind us that he's alive. And I want to say this to you, if Good Friday was the moment that Jesus paid the penalty for all of our sins on the cross, Easter Sunday is the moment that he sealed the deal. I say that to you because to live like Jesus is alive, we have to start thinking like Jesus is alive. The resurrection reminds us of some fundamental things. It reminds us firstly that the sacrifice that Jesus paid on the cross was received by God the Father. That means that when he said to him, here's my blood in exchange for all of these people, God the Father says, I accept what you've done. It is finished. I'm taking it. These people are atoned for. Their blood, your blood has paid for them. Their sins are washed away. As far as the east is from the west is what my Bible tells me. And you know what that means? It means for those of you that are living in a place of condemnation this morning, not conviction, where you are feeling guilty for the things that you've done, you're feeling unworthy, the cross and the resurrection remind you that it's finished. Get over it. Build a bridge. Move on. Jesus has paid the price. Yes, be sanctified. Yes, become the person that God wants you to be, but stop living in your shame. The resurrection reminds us that death has been conquered. Life after death is not a pipe dream. It's not a, it's not, it's not a place of, you know, just a hopeful wonder. This is a reality. Jesus has proven it. And guess what? I say reality because that moment was recorded not just by Christian historians, but many other historians. So we know there is life after the grave. We know that death has been conquered. You know, it's interesting what the angel says to these ladies. He says, fear not. You see, when we live our lives forgetting what the resurrection truly means, we live in a place of fear. But the moment the Marys understand that they have the conviction that Jesus is raised from the dead, they are to fear no more. Conquering death is probably one of the most fearful things that any human being will ever have to face in their lives. But guess what? Because Jesus did it, so will we. The resurrection reminds us that one day, just like Jesus, we will be glorified with him. Glorification is real, friends. And what that tells me is that if I'm living in the reality of the resurrection, I'm living with an eternal mindset, not with an earthly mindset. I'm no longer consumed by the systems of this world, the dead things of this world. I'm fixated on heaven. I'm going there, not that I'm of no earthly value, just to be clear. Because we become so spiritual that we're no good to anyone. I'm saying we know where we're going. We have an inheritance that's being laid, laid up for us. And part of that inheritance is to take what God said and do our work on this earth. The resurrection means that everything that Jesus said was true. Can you imagine if Jesus wasn't resurrected? Do you think we'd be meeting here today? I don't think so. I honestly don't think so. But the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, told both Marys, and he's telling you and I today that everything he said on this earth was true. The Pharisees and the religious leaders kept asking Jesus, what sign can you give us that you are who you say you are? And you know what he said? I will give you the sign of Jonah. Jonah, who was in the belly of a whale for three days and then spat out. Jesus was in the grave for three days and then he was resurrected. The resurrection is the greatest proof that we have that everything that Jesus says about us can be trusted. And that tells me that the promises that Jesus has given me in this word, the promises that I used to read with such passion and now I've forgotten about, or the passion, Well, I mean, the promises that I've said, no, Lord, it, it can't be me, and you can't do this in me, are all of a sudden alive again. The words that God has spoken to you, the destiny that God has given you, all of those things are true in Christ and through his resurrection. The empty tomb, friends, is the resounding cry that rings through the ages and it reminds all of humanity, not just believers, everybody, whether you choose to believe it or not, that Jesus was not just a man, a good person, or even a great teacher. He was and is the God-man and the only human in all of history to be raised from the dead. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Okay, but what happens if I don't believe? What happens if I wasn't there? What happens if I question if this really truly happened or is this not some great con? Maybe there are some of you this morning that have those questions. We like what you're saying, but we weren't really there to see it. And guess what, Marco, neither were you. I know I look old, but I'm not that old. I want to say to you, if that's how you feel this morning, if you're asking the question, did it really happen? I want you to know that that's a good question to ask. It's not a bad question. And it's not a scary question for me. It's a good question. You know why? Because you're in good company. You know, there's this really specific moment that we're going to speak about now. From when Jesus is resurrected and the angel appears to Mary and then Jesus appears to Mary on the road. We'll read about it now. And then Jesus appears to the disciples. There's a time period, right? In that period of time, you know who also doesn't know that Jesus has, or you know who also doesn't know Jesus has, has been resurrected with their own eyes? The disciples, They never knew either. They didn't know what had happened. They had to believe what somebody else was telling them. So just as much as we require faith, the disciples required faith for a short period of time. And I want to talk about that a little bit this morning. Because I think for those of us that are on the fence, this will help us. Verse 8. I mean, sorry, verse 6 of Matthew 28. Verse 7, I mean, of Matthew 28. That way, just we're going to read. It's on the screen. (laughs) Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. The angel was speaking to the Marys, Go tell them. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Two women have been selected in the Gospel of Matthew for this account. Other Gospels say there were other women, but the fact is, women were present when Jesus was, when the, tomb, when the stone was rolled away and when Jesus appeared to them for the first time. It was, it was shown to women. And what strikes me about this is that the ladies weren't the ones that needed the faith, right? I mean, they saw Jesus in the flesh. The Bible says that they literally hugged his feet. They didn't need faith, but the disciples now had to take their testimony and believe them, and so they would require faith. And so the question here is, is their testimony fact or fiction? Is it reliable or isn't it reliable? Well, let me just give you some interesting information here. For centuries... The veracity and the historicity of the biblical account of Jesus' resurrection has been questioned. There is no doubt about it. We've all heard the objections, and maybe you're here with your own set of objections. That's okay. But it's in examining this question, is their testimony reliable? Because that's ultimately what we're dealing with this morning, the testimony of the two Marys. I think that if it was a lie, there's one fundamental flaw in their lie. In all the gospel accounts, women were the ones that met Jesus first. We know that. The resurrection, therefore, is built on the testimony in Scripture of women. Now, before the ladies get angry with me, that's okay, right? I mean, it's okay if you're a woman, no problem. But let me tell you something. If today the woman said that Jesus was resurrected, we'd all say, yes, we believe it 100%. But first century Palestine was a different place. In first century Palestine, a woman had no voice. In fact, a woman's testimony could not even be used in court. And so the fact that the authors of the New Testament chose to use the testimony of two women in the Gospel of Matthew and women in other Gospels as the foundation on which the resurrection was built proves to me that if the authors really were trying to con us, if this was a big scam, that they would have used men in their account. And that tells me that this is most likely probably a testimony that we can trust. And you might say, but proof the, the fact that women saw Jesus first isn't proof that the resurrection happened. I agree with you, it isn't. But it does make a compelling argument that if it was a lie, it's not a great lie. And with that said, I say this. The more important question to me is we think, and most people agree with this, that the testimony can believe, can be believed. So the question is not... Can we trust the testimony? For those of us that are on the fence this morning or who perhaps are struggling with some issues of faith, the question is, what do we do with it? Here it is. Here's the reality. This happened. Now, what are you going to do with it? And that's the question we find in all of our hearts as we start to work through the Gospels, as we start to work through this reality of who Jesus is. I wonder if we can just spend a few minutes just thinking about how we come to faith. Because that's ultimately what we're facing now. I mean like I said the disciples for a very short moment were faced with the same conundrum that every human being today faces. I say that because none of us were present for the resurrection. None of us saw the angel and none of us saw the resurrected Jesus. Unless you have and then you can come tell me about that. But I'm assuming that most of us haven't. And so there's this Beautiful period of time where the disciples have to act like we acting today. We don't have the benefit of experience. What we have is a decision to make. So how does God move our hearts from a place of unfaithfulness to understanding that this testimony is reliable? I believe he does it in a number of ways. He speaks to us through history. God starts to reveal stuff to us through the historical record. There's no doubt about it that, yes, the woman believed Jesus first, but so did the disciples soon after. How do we know that? Well, if you read the book of Acts, you'll realize that everybody believed that Jesus was alive. In fact, they preached the resurrection of Jesus. Go read Acts. And you know what's interesting? They preached the resurrection of Jesus, even though they knew it would cost them their lives. So if it was a lie, these are pretty crazy guys. They really weren't that clever. I mean, you would die for the truth, but you don't want to die for a lie. What's more, the church was birthed in power. There's this moment in time that happens near after Jesus' death, historically recorded that before Christianity was a nothing, there was a few hundred people that followed Jesus on this earth. Most of his followers actually left Jesus, to be honest. He, he lost more than he kept because he spoke the truth. But then after this moment, the Holy Spirit is poured out, and what we see in the historical account is the church explodes. It goes from hundreds to thousands. And guess what? We are here today. We are evidence that whatever started the church is still with us today. Now you might say, well, those are great facts and that's all interesting and it's amazing. But guess what? I want to say this to you this morning. If you're a fact person, facts aren't enough. Facts will never get you saved. As good as the facts may be, as true as the facts may be, I want you to know this morning and I want nobody to be under any illusion. You cannot get saved through facts. We are saved by the Holy Spirit. You see, if I can convince you into the kingdom, then somebody can convince you out of the kingdom. I just said I'm not the most clever person in the world. So if I can convince you, somebody else can convince you out of it. What we don't need this morning to believe in Jesus is convincing. What we need is conviction. You see, what the Holy Spirit came to do is to convict our hearts. And so as I'm speaking to you right now this morning, maybe your heart is being tugged because you actually realize that if there is the reality of me standing before a perfect God, as as Ashley said earlier, that is going to demand perfection from me in the state that I'm currently in, I will never be able to fulfill what God wants from me. And it's in that moment that we realize the severity of our sin. And when we realize that, we start to cry out to God and say, Lord, forgive me. Help me. I can't do this. And it's in that moment that the Holy Spirit comes and says, there is an answer for you because you will never be good enough. You will never be perfect. No matter how much religious works you do, God will never accept you the way you are because even though you're doing that, you know what you've done. And the accuser stands before us and says, you know what you've done. But the Holy Spirit comes and says, Jesus paid the price. On the cross, Jesus cried out, Tetelestai. We spoke about this on Friday. It is finished. It is done. The atonement is over. The resurrection is proof of that. And so we are saved, yes, through fact, but we are saved by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is alive, my friends. And so the question now is this. What story will we choose to believe? Matthew 28, verse 11 While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The one thing God will never do is force us to make a decision. The Holy Spirit is a gentleman. And God's never going to make us follow him. If he wanted that, we'd all be saved today and there'd be no problems on this earth because God would have created a bunch of robots. But however God gave us with the ability to decide, it's called free choice. It's called the will. Adam and Eve chose to betray God in the garden and that kicked off an entire series of events. But guess what? Every choice that you've made in your life, bad or good, you've made. And this morning, God's giving us another choice. I believe he's laying before us two choices and the choice is this. What story do you choose to believe? One event. One event. Two sets of eyewitnesses, two gods, two women. The exact same event happens. The angel comes down. The gods go and tell the Roman and the Jewish authorities exactly what happened. By the way, their story is not very different to the ladies' stories. But in the mix, there's a little bit of bribery, a little bit of this. This is not really what happened. And so guess what? You're going to tell another story. And in this, in these choices between these two different stories, I want to tell you this morning that we found the only two options available to humanity. You see, you might have come in here believing that you had many ways to God or you had different things that you could do and there were many options out there and all roads lead to God and this and that and you actually have more power than you think. But I want to say this to you this morning. There are only two choices laid before any human being. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 19 says this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessings and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live. The two choices before us today are the truth and the lie. Everybody has to decide for themselves which one they will believe. My job, again, is not to convince you to believe either one. I hope the Holy Spirit has done it. But on the one hand, we can choose to believe that Jesus is who he says he was. We can choose to allow the witness of the Holy Spirit at least invite him in. I promise you now, if you give God the opportunity to say, Lord, show yourself to me, he will show himself. And we can choose to believe that Jesus died on the cross and our sins have been paid paid for no matter what we've done. And this is not about being a good person or a bad person. It's about choosing life. Or we can choose to believe that Jesus isn't who he says he was. And there's no judgment here. I want you to know that. If you choose the other way, that's okay. That's your choices between you and God. I have no judgment. I love you regardless, whatever you choose to do. I hope you choose life. But if you choose to say, I don't buy it, I don't believe it, that's cool too. But just understand this, that you are taking the responsibility for your eternal salvation in your hands. You have a high bar to live to in order for you to be acceptable to a holy and righteous God. That's choosing death. It's never easy to preach the truth and to preach the gospel but Peter says this in first Peter chapter three he said blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope not a dead hope not a dying hope not a dead system of this world not a dead idol not something that's going to hurt you a living hope through what through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and then guess what when we make that decision this is what God does He saves us into an inheritance that is imperishable, can never be taken away, will never disappear, undefilable, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I believe this morning for some of us, it is the last time, not last time of your life. I'm saying I believe that the context here, that salvation is being revealed to you today, I believe God's doing that in people's hearts. I believe maybe for the first time, you're having this revelation for yourself. And I praise God for that. It's definitely not me. But I do want to say something to all of us that do believe. Jesus, before he leaves this earth, in this chapter, the Matthew chapter 28, leaves us with a command. In fact, it's four commands and two promises. But without getting technical, it basically sits on our warrior. It says to know Christ and to make him known. I'm not speaking to those on the fence now. I'm speaking to believers. I'll get back to the fence now. If you're a believer here this morning, understand something. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ... Yes, it gives us the benefit of living the fulfillment, living in the fulfillment that God wants us to live. But it leaves in us a responsibility, friends. And that responsibility is exactly what Jesus said. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He says this to his disciples in Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me. What he's saying is that stop being the people who are cowering at the gates of hell. Instead, become the people who are storming the gates of hell. And then he says this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, every ethnic group. In other words, believers, get out of your comfort zone. Go see people that you've never seen before, people that maybe you don't even know. For some of us, maybe it's going to another nation. For others, maybe it's going to another city. For some of us, it's going next door to our next door neighbors. Go and make disciples of all nations. What are disciples? They are followers of Christ. The picture here is followers of Christ. Make more followers of Christ. You don't need a pastor, a preacher, a teacher, an evangelist to make a follower of Christ. You have in you the gospel and Christ in me is the hope of glory. And so I can bring it to somebody else. And then he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism speaks of new life. Baptism is the resurrection. Jesus went into the grave. Three days later, he came out of the grave. When you baptize someone, you say, make a public declaration of your faith. The old man is gone. The new man is here. We are new creations. Let's stop treating each other like old creations. Let's stop treating ourselves like old creations. We are new men, new women, created in Christ. And then he says this. He ends off the Great Commission. To say, and teach them all that I've commanded you. Friends, we are called to disciple each other. Not just go in there. And it's great if you've got tracts and you've handed them out, good job. But find people that you can build with. If you're not in a church today, I wanna recommend that you join a church. Please, it doesn't have to be Hope Rock Church. Please go where God's called you to go, but be in a discipleship relationship. You will never grow unless you're surrounded by people of the same faith who can challenge you, encourage you, and build you up. And then Jesus ends with this promise. He says, and know this, I will be with you to the end of the age. We touched on this issue last week. Loneliness is one of the, I believe one of the most fundamental pandemics we have to deal with in the world. Forget about COVID, forget about sickness. One of the biggest pandemics we're dealing with at the moment is this issue of loneliness. The enemy wants us alone, isolated, set apart, feeling like there's no one we can talk to, no one we can trust. Husbands don't speak to their wives because their wives don't understand them. Wives don't speak to their husbands because their husbands don't get them. Kids don't speak to their parents because their parents will never understand them. Parents don't speak to their children because their generation's messed up. Every generation's messed up and so we can talk to no one and nothing. And if that was true, fine but let me tell you something in the absence of that being true because it isn't we can talk to people God says that he is with us to the end of the age after this moment the Holy Spirit is poured out Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and the Holy Spirit was poured out on the early church with power we are never alone friends a we are not alone in a community of believers but b we are always with God and he is with us and so believers in the room we start off this journey of ours with jesus and he says come and see a lot of us get stuck coming to see we're in the tomb we never left we've just seen the evidence of jesus we had the revelation that he's alive and we've just stayed in the tomb because you know that's good enough i'm happy he's alive i'm saved what he said was true i'm going to heaven the angel said go and tell Jesus appeared, go and tell. And now Jesus is telling us the same command that rested in the woman is the same command that lives in us today. Go, friends, today and tell the world that Jesus is alive. That's our call, that's our mission, and that's our mandate. And I'm passionate about it because you know what? It was because somebody came to tell me the gospel that I'm here today. Can I ask you to stand? We're going to pray i'm gonna get back to those of you that are sitting on the fence i haven't forgotten about you and by the way neither has god wherever you are today neither has god forgotten about you and i want you to know this that no matter what decision you choose to make today god has not forgotten about you with all of our heads bowed i'm gonna give i feel like i'm obliged because i have to give an opportunity for people to be to respond to this day. There is an opportunity to be adopted into a family today that we would never be able to earn our way into or gain entry if it wasn't for Jesus. And so if you're here today and you've been on the fence in your life and, and you somehow, something has stirred in your heart this morning and you feel like there is, there is a reality to what I'm saying because the Holy Spirit has convicted you, I want to pray with you. So if you, if you are that person, can I ask you just to raise your hands with me? I'm going to ask anyone else if you want to say this prayer. You're welcome to just in unison with people but just raise your hands. God wants to deposit something and give you freedom. And the prayer is not a difficult prayer and it's not going to fundamentally, you know, change anything in your life. But what it is, is a declaration that you're saying that you're going to follow the living God. And so the prayer goes like this. Heavenly Father, I come to you today and I understand that in and of myself, I'm incapable of earning your love. No matter how good I am, no matter what I look like, no matter what I behave like but I do know that there is an answer to my problem and that is the blood of Jesus Christ Father God your son died for me on the cross of Calvary and in that great exchange he gave me his righteousness and he paid for my sin and I believe in that transaction today and I declare that I believe in you Jesus and I thank you for my salvation if you pray that prayer for the first time and you don't know much about what it means to be saved, I want to ask you to come and talk to one of the leaders in the church, Catherine or I, or any other deacons or the prayer team at the back. But now for those of us that are believers, I want to pray. And I seem to do this quite often, but I don't think we can ever get enough of this. But I want to pray for us to be a people that will go and tell the gospel. So if you've lacked faith, courage, boldness, maybe even confidence in yourself, and you've forgotten the promises of God over your life, pray with me. Let's lift our hands. Let's be courageous. Let's raise them up to the roof and say, Lord, here we are. We want to be used by you. We want to be sent by you. We want to be commissioned by you. We want to change nations and change the world, not for our glory, but for your glory, Lord. Father, I pray for every single one of my friends today whose hands are raised. I pray that you would pour out your spirit on us, Lord, for that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you'll be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We cannot do this without your Holy Spirit. We can't do this with cleverness. We can't do this with intellect. We need your power. And I pray you'd pour your power out today in a huge way over every single hand that's raised. Release people, envision people, and send us, Lord. Open doors of opportunity. And I pray for the lost in our city, that you would connect them with us, Lord, and that we would be the light that you've called us to be. Not judgmental, not self-righteous, not better than or anything different, but just salt and light. And I pray this in Jesus' name.